Man, it's been a great weekend. It's been a busy weekend, but man, it's been a great weekend. We had a great crowd for our Good Friday service uh, this past Friday night with uh, Bob Russell. I know a lot of you all were here for that and, and came to hear him speak, and, and uh, that was we had a great time with that. We went to dinner afterwards, uh, Mike and myself and Bob and Bobby Jack Murphy were, were all sitting at dinner, and evidently Bob Russell is a big Bucky's gas station fan. I didn't know that until our conversation, but I don't blame him. I'm a big Bucky's fan too. They got great brisket, and uh, I know you go to gas station for brisket. Don't get gas station sushi. Gas station brisket, it's all right, so just remember that, but anyway, uh, I mentioned in that conversation that I did a lot of my Christmas shopping this past year at Bucky's, and one of the items that I bought was the first outfit I'd ever bought for my dog what came at, from Bucky's. It was a Bucky's t-shirt. And Bobby Jack Murphy looked at me with this, with this face of disappointment. Like, how can you buy a dog an outfit? I mean, it was like, you're losing your man card over this. Like, I'm taking it, and, and he had this just disappointing look. And then just moments after that, Bob asked Mike what his title in the church and the community was, and Mike said, well, the Pope, and, which is true, and then I said, but it's not his ring, we have to kiss, and, and Bobby Jack Murphy said, you can have your man card back, yeah, so it's been a great weekend, and I tell you, I love Easter. Easter is, it's, I always say Baby Day is my favorite Sunday, but I think, I think Easter Sunday is my favorite Sunday, because people will say, well, well Easter, just, it's, it's the same old story over and over again. You know, every time Easter comes around, it's just the same story, and, and I'm like, yeah, it is, and that's the great thing about it, because I absolutely love this story, and, and I hope that you love this story, but to understand the, the full implications, in fact, to understand the personal implications of this Easter story. It requires us to, to pause in the very early moments of the story. To pause in the moments where, if we're just reading our Bibles, where we might just read through it real quickly. Or if we're hearing somebody tell the story, we just kind of move quickly through it. And so I want to take you back to just for a moment, back to that moment. That moment in time when Jesus had been crucified. And he's hanging on the cross. And people are staring at him, and there's a large crowd, and in the back of the crowd, they're, they're the disciples that haven't fled the city yet. They're, they're, they're trying to, but they haven't, they haven't made it out of the city yet. The, the, the women are there. They're in the back of the crowd. The women who have followed him from Galilee, they're there. Mary, the mother of Jesus, his mother, is there. But let me tell you who wasn't there when Jesus was crucified. When Jesus was crucified, there were no Christians there was no church, there were no Bibles, there were no believers, there was none of that stuff when Jesus was crucified. When Jesus was crucified, all that was left were dozens of Galileans who were heartbroken and overwhelmed with sorrow and confusion. That's who was there. Their, their religious leaders, the people that they had looked up to, the people that they thought were the next thing closest to God, they had conspired with Rome, their enemy, to murder, to falsely accuse and to try and to crucify the best person that they had ever known. Someone who wasn't supposed to die. I mean, someone who, who they had come to believe was God's ultimate and final Messiah, that he was, he was God's final king, and yet in less than 24 hours, he was arrested, he was tried, and he was executed, and they were in shock because this was completely unexpected. In fact, just the opposite is what they thought was going to happen. They thought they were on the verge of winning 
They thought they were on the verge of winning because just four days prior to this, they had come into the city of Jerusalem, and, and as they got closer to the, to the city gates, the, the crowds that followed Jesus and, and his disciples, the crowds just got larger and larger and larger, and, and, they, and before you knew it, it, it felt like kind of a, a military parade. They, they were hailing Jesus as this great king as if he had just won some military battle and had just conquered some nation and had brought all this glory back to, back to their nation. And then it becomes political. They yell, Hosanna. Hosanna is the blessed one who who comes in the name of the Lord, and blessed is the king. And there's just so much momentum, and and there's so much excitement. And the the men and women who'd been following Jesus for, in this case, two to three years at this point, they're realizing this is the moment that we've waited for. This is the moment where all of our hopes and our dreams, this Messiah, it's coming true. This is the moment where Jesus is going to take off his his rabbinical robe, and he's going to proclaim himself as the king. This is the moment that our our grandparents have told us about and their grandparents told them about and their grandparents and their grandparents. This is the moment that we're going to see the long-awaited Messiah. They were on the verge of winning. And then suddenly, unexpectedly, it's over. I mean, it's over. He's hanging on a cross. And the remains of a body, of a crucified body, they would, they would be taken off and they would be put in the dump, in the town dump, and ultimately probably rot it and then just whatever was left would be eaten by wild animals but for a price for a price you could you could sometimes bribe a a roman centurion for the body of a of a of a person who had been crucified the gospel writers tell us that that nicodemus who was a well-known pharisee in the in the city of jerusalem and joseph of arimathea who was a well-known citizen in the city that they actually bypass the centurion they don't go to the to the guards they go straight to the governor of Pilate, and they ask for the body of Jesus to, so that they can give him a proper burial. And the gospel writers tell us this, that they take Jesus' body to a cave that had been recently renovated to serve as a tomb for his family. And so they prepare his body with spices and they wrap him in linen as was the custom of the day. And they're going to seal him in the tomb. And, and the way things worked back then, they, you would put a body in the tomb and then you would come back years later or family members would come back and you'd go into the tomb and you would remove the bones out. And you'd put it in a box called an ossuary box. Or, or we might call it a bone box. In fact, now, even now, anytime places are excavated in, in Galilee all the way down into Jerusalem, even today thousands and thousands of these ossuary boxes or bone boxes are, are always dug up. And so the goal would be to take Jesus' bones and put them in an ossuary box and his family would, would take it and they would... They, they would hold on to it. You know, that's just what they did. We keep ashes, they kept bones. And so Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they go and they prepare his body for burial. And the reason they did that, why these two well-known established men in, in this community, the reason they did that is because they had hoped. They had hoped. They were, they were secret followers of Jesus, but because of their political and, and public stature in the community and in the religious organizations, they, they had to be kind of private about their following Jesus. So they didn't want too many people to know that they were followers of Jesus. Of Jesus. But clearly, in their minds, they were wrong because he couldn't be this king that they thought he was going to be. I mean, he couldn't be because he's dead. He, he could not be this, this man that he had claimed to be. But, but he was a good man. And clearly, he didn't deserve to be treated the way that, they, the way that he'd been treated. He didn't deserve the fate of a common criminal. And so, so they did what they could. And then they went home and they prepared to celebrate the Sabbath and to p- celebrate Passover. 
Meanwhile, 1,500 miles away in Rome, Tiberius Caesar, the most powerful man in the world, has no idea what's going on in the armpit uh, of the Roman Empire, what he would consider the armpit of the Roman Empire in, in the, the area known as Judea. Saul of Tarsus, who would later step onto the scene as, as the Apostle Paul, who, who would end up writing about half of the New Testament, Saul of Tarsus somewhere in Jerusalem is celebrating Passover and Sabbath with all of his Pharisee buddies because he was a Pharisee. And, and they're celebrating that, hey, this, this troublesome rabbi, this guy that caused all, caused all of us so many problems, he's been taken off the scene. We're never going to hear from him again. We can celebrate. It's a Passover worth celebrating tonight. Thomas, the disciple with that unfortunate nickname, Doubting Thomas. He'd fled the city along with some of Jesus' other followers and thinking, you know, if they could take the leader of the movement, certainly they could take the followers of the movement as well. Meanwhile, Peter and James and John and several others, they're, they're all huddled together somewhere in the city of Jerusalem. They're trying to figure out how to get out of the city. They haven't left yet. And they're just trying to figure out what to do next and what, what's going to happen next. What does normal look like for us on the other side of this event? Peter probably considers going back to his, to his father's fishing business. And some of the guys in the group, they would have probably gone along with him. Matthew. Poor Matthew, the tax collector. He had no job prospects at this point in time. Across town, the, the women are gathered. Mary, the mother of Jesus, the gospel writers tell us they're ga she's gathered with women. And for those of you who are moms, and can, can you even imagine, and, and we can't, maybe we shouldn't even think about it or try to dwell on it very long, but can you imagine standing at the back of that crowd, watching your son being stripped naked and nailed to a cross? Mary, the mother of Jesus, no doubt was in shock. So what you have in this moment, and the reason we're pausing here is, is because is you have confused citizens. You have frightened ex-disciples. You have broken-hearted women, a broken-hearted mother. But the one thing that you would not have found in that moment, you would have found no Christians, no believers, no, no, no followers, nobody. They, the people that would write the story of, of the resurrection of Jesus, that they would, would pass the story on to us, they write themselves into the story as unbelievers. Think about that. They write themselves into the story as unbelievers. Nobody, including Jesus' mother, believed at that moment that Jesus was the Savior of the world. He couldn't, and he wouldn't, even save himself. Certainly, he was not the long-anticipated king of Israel. And it's important to know this too. It's important to know that nobody in the group, even according to their own testimony, planned to, to keep the dream alive, that they planned to keep the movement going. They all just planned to go back to work. They, they were going to figure out how to get out of the city safely and then just try to figure out what happens next. What's normal look like now? But nobody's going to keep this dream alive or the Jesus movement moving because, I mean, why bother? And this is overlooked and, and, and if you're someone who used to be a person of faith or, and you walked away or you drifted away or you behaved yourself away or you just lost interest. Maybe somebody talked you out of it. This, is, this part's really, really important. The driving force of Jesus' ministry was not his teaching. Okay, We need to understand that the driving force of Jesus' ministry was not his teaching. In fact, his teaching was incredibly impractical. Much of his teaching was very offensive. I mean, pay your taxes? Well, that's a great way to start a movement, isn't it? Pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Lust equals adultery. Turn the other cheek and forgive. I mean, who's going to do that? 
Who's going to do that? Who's going to follow someone who teaches that? Look, we need to understand this. Jesus didn't come to leave us with a collection of insights and, and short stories and parables. He didn't ask people, okay, and this is the problem. He didn't ask people to trust his ideas or to follow his instructions. He instructed his followers to follow him and to put their trust in him. It wasn't his ideas and his insights that got him crucified. It's who and what he claimed to be. He claimed to be a king. He claimed to be Israel's Messiah. In fact, you read the Gospels at, at several different points. On, on more than one occasion, he, he proclaimed, and, and this means absolutely nothing to us, but he proclaimed to be greater than Moses. And that was so offensive in, in the first century. He claimed to be greater than Moses. And, and it's just like, wait, 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 just a moment. You, you're, you can't be greater than Moses. Moses gave us the law. Moses gave us the Torah. You, you can't be greater than Moses. If you're claiming to be greater than Moses, then you're claiming to be greater than the law. And Jesus would say, I'm greater than the prophets. The, the ultimate offense would be that he claimed to be greater than the temple. The entire structure, the entire system that represented how these people would make things right with God. Jesus said, I am greater for the, for the one who is greater than the temple has come. The implication for the people that ha, who heard this was if you're greater than the temple, then the temple no longer has purpose. To which I think Jesus would have probably just chuckled and smiled and said, just wait. You don't even know what you're talking about yet. On one occasion, as, as you would know, he looked at his disciples and he said, if you've seen me, and this is what would get him in trouble, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the what? You've seen the, the Father, right? That, that, the point being that Peter and the boys, that they did not follow Jesus because of what he taught. At times they followed him in spite of what he taught. They followed him because of who they believed he claimed to be. Because of who he claimed to be. He claimed to be the Messiah, the King, and that's why they followed him. But as we pause in that moment, they were wrong. I mean, the Holy One of God, the Messiah of God, he can't be killed, right? I mean, especially by a foreign power, nobody, nobody could believe that. So when Jesus died, the movement, the Jesus movement, it died right along with him. And it's important to know as well, because this gets confusing in our, in our modern culture. But Jesus was not a reformer, okay? He didn't come to reform something or change something or make something better. He, he had no uh, intentions to do any of that, and he was very clear about that. He came to establish something brand new. And, and the temple leaders and Rome, they didn't want anything established that was brand new. They wanted to, to maintain and manage what was. And Jesus said, no, 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 I'm beginning something brand new. And he would gather his followers together in Syria and he'd say, hey, I'm I'm beginning something new. A a brand new congregation, a brand new assembly, a brand new movement. And on this declaration that I'm the Christ, the son of the living God that Peter had just made, he said, on that declaration, I'm going to create, I'm going to establish my ecclesia, my church, my, my movement, my gathering, my congregation. And he says, and guys, when you pass away, when you die, and when I pass away, not even the gates of hell will be able to stop what we're beginning together. Look, Jesus didn't come to reform anything or to change something or to make something better. He came to create something absolutely brand new. Politicians and activists in in our world, they often try to co-op Jesus for their cause, for their thing. But read the Gospels. Jesus did not leave that open as an option for us. And his first century followers, those who who were there for it, who were in the middle of the action, they understood this. And so when Jesus breathed his last, his ecclesia, his movement, it did as well. Rome 
had won. And they all unfollow Jesus. They all flee when he's arrested. They keep their distance during the crucifixion. And, and they gather in the city or they're trying to get out of the city and just figure out where to go and what to do next. But there were no Jesus followers when Jesus was crucified. There were no Christians. There was no church. There was no Bible. And, and to the point of the Easter story, when Jesus died, when he breathed his last, everybody, I mean everybody, including his mother, expected Jesus to do what dead people do, to stay dead. And so Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they prepared his body for, for, for burial. They prepared his body to stay dead. And on Easter morning, no one is standing outside of the tomb, counting down backwards, you know, 10, 9, 8, 7, cue the sun, 6, cue the music. There was none of that, all right? There was, there was nobody there. In fact, the Gospels, it tells us that the women who love Jesus, they get up just as the sun is rising, as the Sabbath is coming to an end, and they get up and go to the tomb to re-prepare Jesus' body for burial because they assume that Jesus is going to do what dead people do, that he's going to stay dead. And when they get there, and the reason they went back there is because the text tells us that they were there when Joseph of Arimathea and when Nicodemus prepared his body for burial. Apparently, they didn't think the men did it right. So they came back the next morning to redo it. Ladies, you ever, you ever reload the dishwasher after your husband has done it? You don't have to embarrass them. We know you do it. They didn't think Jesus, that Jesus' body had been prepared right, so they went back to, to redo it, to do it the right way. So back to this moment in time, though. No Christians, ju just an empire that's relieved, a Roman governor that's relieved. Pilate is so relieved that they've gotten rid of this troublesome rabbi, and everything is going to go back to normal. A relieved governor, sad Galileans, the empire and the temple, they conspired to get rid of, uh, of rid themselves of this radical rabbi, potentially avoiding a bloody uprising. And so crisis averted, and now everything and everybody goes back to normal. Y you get the picture, right? So now hit the pause button right there. And I want us to fast forward 350 years later to a very specific date. February the 27th in the year 380. And that, that day probably means nothing to any of us, but it should mean something to all of us. On February the 27th in the year 380, the Roman Emperor Theodosius I issued what is referred to as the Edict of Thessalonica. He passes a brand new law. And this brand new law makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. But not only does it do that, it also ends state support for the pagan priesthood. This now pagan priesthood that has been supported for all of these years by Rome loses its financial support. And all of the financial support now shifts to the church. And Jesus and Christianity is declared the official religion of the Roman Empire. To which if you just hear those two things... All right, you hear those two things. You, you look at what happened at the crucifixion of Jesus. And then you hear about this, this, this edict that's issued. Our response should be, what? Like, wait a minute, wait a minute. What, what, what's going on here? Let me get this straight. Rome crucifies the leading figure of, of a, Ju a Judean cult with the help of his own people. And then Rome considers that same rabbi, this crucified rabbi, Rome considers the same rabbi as God, and not just a God, not, not just a God, but he replaces the entire pantheon of Roman gods. Jesus wasn't even Roman. He'd never even stepped foot into the city of Rome. And, and, and now they've, they've gone and done this. So hit the pause button right there. 
And I want us to fast forward to today, to us. Because today there is no Roman Empire. The Roman Empire doesn't exist anymore. But today Rome, the city of Rome, is full of crosses. But the crosses there don't represent Roman crucifixion. In fact, the crosses in Rome actually represent a single crucifixion. The crucifixion of Jesus. And in our modern times, the cross is no longer a symbol of of suffering or shame or or terror or oblivion. None of those things. In in fact, today the cross represents it. It represents hope and salvation and compassion. And I'm telling you, nobody in the first century would have ever believed that the cross would come to represent those things. That the cross would actually represent the love of God. Nobody would have ever believed that. And today, Jerusalem is filled with thousands and thousands of Christian tourists from all over the world who want to walk where this leader walked, where the leader of this this cult ultimately walked. This Galilean rabbi once walked. People flock there to do that. And if that's all you knew, okay, if that's all you knew, that troublesome rabbis crucified by Rome, then considered a god by Rome, by the very empire that crucified him, and now hundreds of millions of people all over the world believe that he's divine and gather in places like this, larger and smaller, all over the world, especially on a day like today, to worship him. If that's all you knew, the question that you would have to ask, the question that I would encourage you to wrestle with, the question that that you should be thinking about if you've drifted away or or walked away or, or, or whatever, the question to wrestle with is, what happened? Not what was written, but what happened? I mean, because clearly there's more to the story, right? Clearly, I have left something out of the story. Clearly, something caused all of those changes to happen in a relatively short amount of time. So what happened? Well, let me tell you, what happened is why we're here. What happened is why we gather on a day like today. What happened is actually recorded for us by Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. Matthew, who was there. Mark, who got his information from Peter and wrote it down. Luke, who investigated all of these things and talked to everybody. And John, who was there. James, the the half-brother of Jesus, he talks about this. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who would step on the pages of the New Testament as an enemy of the church. as As a person who persecuted the church and wanted to put the church out of business. He writes about it. And, and what they write. It connects all of the dots for us. It tells us what happened. And I want to read a portion of John's explanation about what he said happened. Here's what he said, John chapter 20. He said, early on, this, on Sunday, on the Sunday morning following Passover, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, to Jesus' tomb. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. She leaves and she leaves the, the, the women. She goes to, to prepare Jesus' body. She gets there and she sees that the stone has been removed. And so it says she runs back to the city. And she knows where John and Peter and the other disciples are gathering. And so she goes to them so that they can figure out what to do next. And so she goes running to Simon Peter and, and the other disciple, the, the one that Jesus loved. I love how John describes himself there. He says, oh yeah, by the way, I'm the one that Jesus loved. Just, just remember that. And so she comes running back to Simon Peter and, and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. And she says this, listen to what she says. She says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Listen to what she said, and what she didn't say. She says, they have taken him out of the tomb, and we don't know where he put him. You notice what she didn't say? She didn't go back running in and say, it's a miracle, he must be alive. The body's missing. He must be alive. That's not what she said. She came to the same conclusion. She drew the same conclusion that any of us would have drawn if we'd gone to that tomb and it had been opened and someone had taken and stolen the body. 
Look, we don't know who took it. We don't know what they did. But, but nobody in that moment assumes that a miracle has taken place. And they write themselves into the story as confused by an empty tomb. Nobody, listen, nobody expected nobody. Nobody expected a miracle. Nobody expected a resurrection. They all expected Jesus to be there in the tomb because that's what dead people do. They stay dead. Luke chimes in in his gospel when he, she reports that this has happened. Luke tells us, he says, But the men did not believe the, the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Men, you don't raise your hands on this. This will get you in trouble. But your wife ever been talking to you? And you're like, I don't have any idea what she's saying. Like, all I hear is that Charlie Brown teacher, like, it, it just sounds like nonsense. I'm telling you, don't raise your hand. You're going to get an elbow. Don't do it. Luke says it seemed like nonsense. And the men thought, wait, 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 you, you've just gone to the wrong tomb. Look, I get it. It's, a, it's, a, it's been a tough couple of days. We're all really emotional. We're, we're you know, it's, it's just, I get it. But, but nobody, nobody broke into the tomb on the Sabbath. Nobody, who would do that on Passover? Nobody would do that. You, you must have just gone to the wrong tomb, okay? So here, I'll go, Peter says, I'll go check it out. John says, hey, I'll go with you. The, John, the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, says, hey, I'll go check it out. Because, you know, now the men, women have gone to correct what the men were supposed to do, and now the men are going to go fix this issue that the women have created. There's just that tension there all the time between men and women, isn't it? And Peter says, I'll check it out. And John says, I'll go with you. But then something interesting happens. It says, so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb, and both were running. You know, I think when they probably walked out the door, they probably both left calmly. They both left and they're walking and, and one of them's thinking, you, you, know what, the t- you know what, this could be something big. Who stole, who stole Jesus' body? And, and maybe he picks up the pace a little bit and John sees Peter pick up the pace a little bit and John says, you know what, this could be something big and so I'm going to go a little bit faster and they're going a little bit faster and trying to just kind of keep one step in front of the other and the next thing you know, they're both running. And then John <coughs> says this, he includes this little interesting detail He says, John, the one that Jesus loved, he'd want me to remind you of that. He says, so Peter and the other disciples started to the tomb, but they were both running, and the other disciple outran Peter. John includes that, and and I mean, it's his gospel, so I guess he can include that, but it's just kind of like saying, I want for all of history to know that I outran Peter, that I was faster on that day than he was, and we're just going to document this for all of history. It's one of those details that when you read it in the Gospels, it's like, you know, this has to be true because who would, who would, who would write that? Who would make that up? Who, ca- who cares who, who got there first? Who cares who won this foot race? So, so it's got to be true, right? Anyway, so John, because he outran Peter, he gets to the tomb first and he bends over and it says he bent over and he looked into the tomb at the strips. He looks into the tomb and he sees the strips of, of linen lying there, orderly. It wasn't a mess. It wasn't chaos. Somebody had, had folded things, and it was in an orderly context. And, and old Simon Peter comes along. He comes behind, and it isn't in the text, but I think huffing and puffing because he's trying to catch up, right, Peter? And because he's Peter, he just goes straight into the tomb because that's his nature of things. Not, we're not going to check things out, see if it's okay. We're just going head first on in. And so Peter runs into the tomb, and he sees the linens and, and the, the garments that were wrapped around Jesus' head. And then it says, finally, John, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, he keeps saying that, also went inside. And then, don't miss this, because this is so powerful. John tells us that he saw and believed. He saw and believed. 
And in a moment, when he sees everything that's laying there, it finally clicks in his head. This is who he said he was. He, he's not here. Nobody stole the body. We, we, we know that. They didn't steal the body. He is alive. He saw and he believed. Later that afternoon, Jesus would visit very much alive with his disciples in the city. And here's what the gospel writers tell us and what history tells us about that. That they immediately re-engaged with the, mis- with the mission and the message of Jesus. They, they immediately, they, they see Jesus alive and they immediately re-engage with the message and the mission of Jesus. But notice this, they did not re-engage because of what Jesus taught. And they did not re-engage because of something that they believed. They re-engaged because of what and who they saw. They re-engaged because something had happened. It turns out he was everything that he claimed to be. He was, in fact, as he told Mary and Martha after Lazarus died, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. It's not a category. It's not something you, that you just you study or you think about. Look at me, Mary and Martha. When you look at me, you're looking at the resurrection and the life. And I'm telling you, that made absolutely no sense to them when, when, he, when he said that. But suddenly, all of these things, now that he's risen from the dead, all of these things that Jesus taught about himself, all of these things that Jesus claimed, all of the things that Jesus taught and said about himself, suddenly all the dots are starting to connect. And his movement reignites in a moment because he was, in fact, God's final king. He was God's final king who came to die for his subjects instead of asking his subjects to die for him. It was, in fact, an upside-down kingdom. And now they understood that. And they re-engaged and the interesting thing that I, I think about as I think about the Easter story, and this is what I wish I could tell everybody on, on, planet, on planet Earth, is this, is that the resurrection of Jesus is not a Bible story. All right, yeah, it's in the Bible, and it's a story, but it's not a Bible story. If you think that the resurrection of Jesus is just a, a, a Bible story, it's an excuse to have an Easter egg hunt, uh, you're missing the point. Because it's not just a Bible story. The resurrection of Jesus is the story it's the story it's the story that intersects with your story and with my story and it intersects with everyone's story because not only does the resurrection of Jesus resolve one of history's greatest mysteries that is how did the teaching of Jesus how did the church survive the first century when you look back at the first century there's no reason the church should have ever made it out of the first century and yet it did I mean the resurrection of Jesus it it really does resolve that but it also resolves another great mystery. It resolves a personal mystery. It resolves the mystery of how you can know where you stand with God. And how does God feel about you? And how does God view you? And how does God view your sin and your failure? And how does God see you? And how does God feel about you? The resurrection of Jesus resolves that mystery because Jesus taught on all of those things. And he was the only person who ever lived who could ever speak with any authority on that topic of how God feels about the human race. How does God feel about me? And how does God feel about you? I'm telling you, the resurrection of Jesus answers all of those questions. In fact, John, who, who by the way, was the one that Jesus loved, and, and he beat Peter to the tomb. John, as an older man, he would give us his account of the life of Jesus. We just looked at part of it. And in that account, he makes a statement that would become one of the, the, the most quoted statements in all of the world. Certainly one of the most quoted scriptures of the Bible. Uh, certainly of the New Testament. John is the one who would say, hey, let me tell you how, how the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus re- resolves the greatest personal mystery of where we stand with God. 
And the best way that he would say I can describe this is this, is that after being with Jesus for three years and being there for all of it, for God so loved the world. Meaning that God so loved the people in the world that he did what you do when you love someone. He gave. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And John would say, I realized he was my friend and he was my rabbi. But on the backside of this story, I realized that my rabbi and my friend was a gift from God for me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever places their trust in him, whoever places their weight on, places their confidence in, places their faith in, that whoever believes in him would not be lost to God. They would not perish but they would have eternal life. And in spite of what you may have heard, and in spite of how Christians may have treated you, and in spite of how the church might have treated you, John would say, wait, wait, wait just a minute, because I'm not done. There's something else that we never hear much about. He said this, he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have, ever, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. So if you grew up on a version of Christianity that, that left you feeling condemned or or, or in fact condemns you, John would, <laughs> I think he would chuckle and he would say, I don't know where you got that because that's the wrong version. Because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but instead that the world through him might be saved. That it might be saved through the, through the means of him, him being Jesus. Look, the crucifixion of Jesus made absolutely no sense until the resurrection. The resurrection is, is, is why the story was told because everything up until that point really wasn't all that remarkable and really wasn't all that worth repeating because I'm telling you, thousands of people had been crucified by Rome and Jesus' crucifixion, it wasn't really any different than any of the rest of them. What made the difference is that all of those other people stayed dead and Jesus didn't. His resurrection means... That he is who he claimed to be. A savior. Peace with God. A reason to believe. A reason to follow. A reason to believe that he is the king worth following. Because no other king would do the things that he did. No other king would, would uh, wash our feet. No other king would prepare a table for his enemies. No other king would, would lay down his glory for the least of these. No other king would touch disease, would, would touch a leper's skin. No other king would open his arms to, to the outcast of the world. No other king would respond with, with mercy in the face of my sin. No other king would have put up with the mockery that he did and be led to slaughter. To, be, to stand there before Governor Pilate and refuse to speak, to take up a cross and choose to die with these. I'm telling you, no other king would have done that. And that's why we celebrate. That's why Easter is a big deal. Because it's the end of the story that makes it a story worth telling. The story of a king who is like no other king. And I'm just telling you, he's coming back. And when he comes, he's coming for his followers. And if you've never put your faith in him, then this morning we want to offer you an opportunity to do that. We want to offer you an opportunity to put your faith in a king who is like no other king. A king who would willingly die for your sins. And how do we know that? Because he did. Not only did he die for your sins, he conquered death and he rose from the grave. So today, if you've never put your faith in him, I want to invite you to do that. I want to invite you to step out and say, I'm going to follow this king. King like no other king. Let me pray for us.